Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Before we dive in, I want to thank our fans and listeners who took the time to leave us a review. This one comes from Amanda. Highly recommend. Really interesting podcast with inspiring stories. Andrea creates a safe space for these stories and is a great interviewer. Amanda, thank you so much. That means the world to me that you see that I do my best to create a safe space for our guest. Thank you for your five-star rating and review. We really appreciate you, Amanda. A former journalist, Harvard-trained management consultant, and hospital executive, Cynthia Hayes is the author of The Big Ordeal, Understanding and Managing the Psychological Turmoil of Cancer. Since recovering from her own ordeal, she has helped raise awareness of the shared emotional experience of cancer the physical drivers behind it, and how to cope with it all. Cynthia, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me, Andrea. It's a pleasure to be here. And a little disclaimer. So I have met Cynthia in person at ASCO about six weeks or so ago. And and by the way, please tell me you didn't get COVID at ASCO because I did, I did. not get COVID. I oh, am so goodness. sorry to hear you did. I, oh, I hope it wasn't so too bad. So many people did. Yeah, so many people did. But it's not about me. It's about you. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Cynthia, take us back to the beginning. You definitely have a very interesting and prestigious bio. So it sounds like you had a lot going on. So take us back to the beginning of that cancer journey. What was that like and and how did it start? You know, did you have symptoms? Well, it was really interesting because um, I had just retired from a, a very big job and I was going to write the great American novel. And um, it was summer and my daughter had graduated from college and she was home for the summer and we were having fun and I wasn't focused on maintaining my regular health checkup schedule or whatever, but my, <laughs> but my gynecologist was, and she called Good. and said, look, you haven't been here in a while. It's time to schedule an appointment. And I said, sort of, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll do that later. And she said, no, let's schedule it now. So we scheduled it and it was scheduled for September. And I went in and, you know, I had no complaints other than, you know, give you a little fatigue, but at age 57, who isn't a little tired? So it wasn't, it wasn't anything. Um, and um, she went through all of the, you know, usual exams and tests and everything seemed fine. And then a week later, I'm walking down the street with my daughter and we were on a mission. We were going out that night. We were getting our hair done and our nails done. And we were all excited and we were on our way to the, um, the manicurist. And um, cell phone rings and it's the gynecologist's office. And I assume it's somebody calling about, you know, the insurance didn't go through or there's an extra charge or whatever. And so I pick up nonchalantly and it's my, uh, it's my doctor. And she says, Cynthia, you flunked your pap smear. There are some blood, <laughs> blah, 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 cells. I was like, how do you flunk a pap smear? That's test? awesome. You know? That's awesome. <laughs> 
So I, you know, she said there are blah 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 cells, and you need to come back in for more testing and call the office, and and we'll schedule it. And you know, I just sort of shrugged it off and said, sure. Prior sure, sure. to that, had you ever had an irregular Pap smear in your life? Never in my life. Wow. Never okay. in my life. I have always been incredibly healthy and incredibly an easy patient for all of my doctors. Um. But uh, she hung up quickly. She was in the middle of a delivery and she said, call the office, schedule this. And by the time I got to the manicurists, plopped my feet in the bucket and was sitting there, you know, I had five minutes with the, um, uh, with the phone, called the office and um, the office was closed already. I thought, hmm, that's a little odd. Um, and then I started Googling what the blobbity blah cells were that she mentioned. And it was like, oh my God, I'm going to die of cancer. Because the cells that they found were the early markers of a um, very aggressive type of uh, endometrial cancer. And, you know, I literally, I just went into instant panic mode. And um, the office was closed the next day, even though it was a Friday, um, because I mean, you can't make this stuff up. The Pope was in town and the Pope no. was visiting somebody across the street from my gynecologist's office. So they had to close because they were going to wow. be cordoned off all day long. So I had to wait until Monday to schedule the appointment. And so that was, um, it was literally four days of just agony of not being able to talk to anybody, not knowing what was going on and being fearful about um, what the, the test was going to uh, going to show and convinced yeah. that I was going to die of cancer. Your adult daughter was right there with you. Did you tell her? Anything? She was. No, <laughs> no, I did not. I did not say a word. I did tell my husband. So my adult daughter was there with us, um, but she was also preparing to take the um, uh, the law school entrance exams. And oh, okay. I just didn't want to distract her. She was really focused. She was studying hard. And, you know, it, this was this was news she just didn't need to hear. Um, and it wasn't confirmed news. So right, you didn't even know what didn't even know for sure. Um, she did, however, take me for the endometrial biopsy, which wow, don't get that done without anesthesia. Um, incredibly painful procedure. And um, Wait, wait, wait. Uh, Why did you not have anesthesia? Nobody told me I needed it. <laughs> a gynecologist said, come that on a decision just, that they make? That. <laughs> let's just do that endometrial biopsy, um, which, you know, I had had my babies a long time ago. That cervix had not been open. It was painful. Um, <laughs> but that was, that was the next step in the, in the process. And, uh, and we had to wait until Tuesday to get that test done. And then the following Monday, uh, the results of the test, which did in fact confirm that it was cancer. And uh, by the time I got the phone call from the doctor saying, yes, it's cancer, um, it was a Monday morning. My daughter had taken the uh, LSATs and we didn't have to worry about that anymore. She had uh, then gone off to uh, for a long weekend and was not back yet by the time we knew. So couldn't tell her yet. Couldn't tell my son because I didn't want to tell him without telling her at the same time. That's fair. Yeah. And I couldn't even tell my husband because at the moment I got the news, he was at the dentist's office with a mouthful of cotton. <laughs> 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 it 
was just an absurd situation. And of course I'm laughing about it now, but at the time I was in, uh, in so much turmoil. It was such a panic sure. and just, I was um, anxious and fearful and incredibly stressed. And as I said, certain that I was going to die. This was a cancer with very low uh, survival statistics. And uh, yeah, I was. And I what was, type of cancer was it specifically in what stage? Uh, it was um, a serous carcinoma, endometrial serous carcinoma. And, you know, the lucky thing was that it was stage one um, because it was caught on a pap smear. I didn't have any symptoms. Um, nothing else was going on in my body. It was just there were these few random cells caught in the pap smear. And, of course, it was, you know, when I started um, meeting with oncologists that um, my anxiety level started to come down, uh, particularly this one oncologist who, who took my hand and said, look, you know, we won't know for certain until we get in there. Um, right. But this is a cancer we can deal with and you're going to be okay and everything's going to be fine. So just, you know, be patient, um, hang in there. Uh, I know that this is a, a really hard piece of news to hear, but you're going to be okay. And of course, that's the surgeon I ended up choosing because he instantly brought my anxiety down. And, and, and by looking me in the eye like that, he made me feel like a human being, not right a you know a vessel for cancer but a human being with a uh, with a health crisis before we go into your treatment how did your children react uh well you know it was hard my son was on the west coast um and it was very hard for him to um hear the news but also very hard for him to um to know how i was doing um and so he really wanted to be there for me, but didn't want to overdo. So he was, you know, frequently on FaceTime, frequently um, texting and, and being supportive, but being from a distance. Um, and my daughter just never left my side. She was, uh, you know, throughout the entire process, uh, just, you know, there for me every, every step of the way. She was just amazing. Wow. Uh, just amazing. And so what was the treatment? You mentioned surgery. So yes, I had that. a I had a radical hysterectomy, which meant they took everything out. Now, I wasn't using it anymore, so it was okay. But um, even though I had uh, previously gone through menopause, your ovaries continue to deliver a little trickle of juice for quite a while still. And to have them surgically removed um, just puts a hard stop to that. So it was um, it was a tough uh, surgery. Uh, not just because it was a physically arduous process to uh, remove all of those uh, pieces, but then the recovery process was quite extensive, um, in part because of uh, the, the surgical process itself, but in part because of the hormonal changes that accompanied it. Um, and, um, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, they tried to do it laparoscopically, but because of where the cancer was, they were afraid they were going to disrupt the cancer. Um, and so they ended up opening me up, which meant that I first had my belly blown up so they could get their laparoscopic instruments in there and see what was going on. And then had uh, an open incision hip to hip before they took everything out. So I definitely had a more complicated um, experience than, uh, than some patients. Um, and it was painful, well, definitely painful. So. Um, yeah, that's a big, I mean, it's a big surgery anyway. I've, 
I've had a radical hysterectomy as well um, because of endometriosis. I finally just threw in the towns that I can't do it anymore. I'm, 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 yeah, done. I'm done. And I was very, I was very scared because I was not in menopause and I, you know, I was like in perimenopause for sure, but I wasn't in menopause. And so mm -hmm. for, for people who don't understand, you're right. If you, even if you've gone through menopause, but still have your ovaries, they are you know, giving you some estrogen. And so when you wake up from surgery, from radical hysterectomy, you are immediately thrown into menopause and you have nothing in your body anymore giving you any estrogen. Yep. And it's just this immediate sort of shock to your system. Yeah. Um, mine was laparoscopic so mm -hmm. much so that I didn't believe the surgery had happened. <laughs> like I got into a super weird argument. I get very argumentative when I wake up from anesthesia. And I was like, you didn't do this because I, I wasn't in any pain. I was like, you didn't do that surgery. It did not happen. You know, I didn't, I didn't believe it until, you know, until, until like, you know, a day later or whatever. Um, but yeah, to be opened up, you know, such a huge incision like that, yeah. that's a much more, difficult yeah. surgery to recover from. And like you said, now your ovaries are gone. So yep. now my ovaries yeah. gone. And one thing that I wasn't, um, you know, truly focused on, but the, the, the uterus and all of the gynecologic organs are behind the intestines. So in order to get to the gynecologic organs, so I got pull out that mess of spaghetti in there and then do their surgery and then shut everything back in. And you know, the um, intestine is, is not attached to anything, so it's fine. Let's just pack it back in there, and it's got its own little um, sack to go in. But it's it's um, it gets manhandled a lot, and that leads to complications and, and um, side effects down the road. So, so you have that surgery. How long was the recovery from the surgery? So, you know, I am a very physically fit and active person and I was, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, running until, uh, until the 48 hours before um, surgery, <laughs> playing tennis, <laughs> you know, amazing. all of that sort of stuff. But then after the surgery, I wasn't allowed to do anything for three weeks. And um, the first, uh, you know, uh, I was in the hospital for three nights and then I was sort of on the couch for another three or four days. And then I was, I was fine. I was uncomfortable, but it was fine. Uh, but the doctor said, nope, still can't do anything. Um, so it was three weeks before I was allowed to really go for a walk, um, you know, beyond, you know, 10 steps or whatever. Um, and, um, and then I saw the doctor again and he said, okay, back to full activity. You can do whatever you want to do um, after that, after that three weeks. So, you know, depending upon how you want to define um, how hard or challenging was that recovery. Um, of course, you know, the, the thing was that as soon as I was recovered from that surgery, then they wanted to start me on chemotherapy. And I did six rounds of chemotherapy. The standard chemo for most gynecologic cancers is uh, carboplatin and taxol. It's a really lovely combo um, that uh, will make you lose all of your hair, um, will make you nauseous, will make you constipated, will, like, you know, all of the nasties one thinks of um, that come with chemo, uh, including neuropathy and muscle aches and pains and uh, wipe out your red blood cells and your white blood cells and, um, and further complicate your intestinal issues because yeah. uh, chemo 
the way chemo is effective is that it kills off fast growing cells. So hair follicles, you know, those are fast growing cells. Our hair renews itself on a regular basis. Skin, I had amazing skin because those skin cells were turning over pretty quickly. But the lining of the intestine is also one of those things that turns over pretty quickly. And so therefore those cells are, um, are dying and that's what messes up the intestine so much. Really? I don't think anyone's ever put it that way before with such specificity. That's mm. really interesting. That explains a lot. So how long did it take to do the six rounds of chemotherapy? Um, so it, uh, it was a three week cycle. So it was pretty much um, five months of, of treatment. Um, wow. And, uh, you know, the first um, first day after treatment. So they, they give you lots of um, pre-meds along with uh, your chemotherapy. Um, so pre-meds included things like um, Benadryl, which ensures that you don't have an allergic reaction to the chemo does make you very sleepy, meaning that day goes by pretty quickly. Um, also, um, anti-nausea medications so that chemo is not anywhere near as hard on the body as a lot of the old movies and stories of chemo are because of the advances in anti-emetics, they call them. And then the third thing they give you is, um, is steroids and the dexamethasone that is a part of many chemo infusions also helps the body, um, uh, it, it makes the chemo more effective, but it also helps prevent um, allergic reactions or um, going into anaphylactic shock or you know, any of those other lovely things that might happen. Um, and of course, the steroids also make you feel great. So the day of the infusion, after having had a good Benadryl nap and gotten my hit of dexamethasone, I would come home feeling wired and ready to go. And I got my treatments on a Thursday, usually Friday. That would be the day I would organize for the weekend because I had all of this energy. And sometimes I even went to the gym on, on the Friday. No, yeah. really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We were just determined to not let those red blood cells disappear. Um, but then Saturdays and Sundays were pretty much, you know, counter potato days. Um, and that's when the nausea would kick in and, um, you know, like, the, the worst of the chemo side effects were over the weekend. And then Monday would be the day when the last of the dexamethasone would be leaving my system. That would be the day of the emotional crash. I would always be in tears on Monday. The why me, the why is this so you know miserable? Why is this happening? And then Tuesday I'd wake up, it's like, oh, okay. I'm, I'm okay. I'm tired, I'm weak, I'm pathetic, but I'm okay. And you know, then I had another, uh, you know, two and a half weeks to build back before it would have to be the next time. Um, and the the cycling through um, was really determined by how quickly your white blood cell and red blood cell counts um, plummeted and then recovered. Right. And yeah. um, the white blood cell count plummeting, one wouldn't necessarily notice. Um, but the red blood cell count plummeting meant no energy. Um, and that's why cumulatively the fatigue builds um, because right. you never fully recover from one dose of chemo before they whack you with the next one. And, uh, and so as is relatively common, there were um, a couple of times when I had to have um, uh, Neupogen shots. And Neupogen is... Um, a drug that stimulates the development of uh, white blood cells and causes 
incredible pain in one's bone marrow because that's where the white blood cells are generated. So all of a sudden you have these shooting pains in mostly in your um and your lower legs, but um uh, because your body is stimulating the growth of those uh of those blood cells. And and the best way to stimulate red blood cell growth was uh exercise, which is why I was so determined. Um I would go to the gym and try and push the pedals on the bike <laughs> or go um you know, for an extended uh, walk, trying to elevate my blood, uh, uh, my heart rate enough to um, signal to the red blood cells, hey, get busy in there, we need more. Did you ever receive any blood transfusions? Never had any blood transfusions. Did have to postpone a couple of treatments because the white blood cell counts were too low. But never needed a transfusion. I'm always so amazed how different even if you had the exact same cancer, the patient is exactly the same age, you know, even if everything is quote unquote the same, how often different the protocols are, mm-hmm. because my sister, I gave her a Neupogen shot every day. Yeah. Every day she had. Poor dear. And Poor dear. Yes. And <laughs> that, that and that, yeah. And that was, that was the protocol. Now that was 20 years ago and she was a teenager but yeah. that was just something that was accepted. That was the norm. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and yeah, the bone pain was excruciating, excruciating. for her, especially excruciating. the thinner she became. Right. You know, at first I, I think not so much, but yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, I just, and by the way, <laughs> I think you're the first person to ever say something positive about steroids. So I got to throw that <laughs> out there. <laughs> Oh, they make you feel so good. <laughs> well, but see, I wasn't sure if you were being sarcastic or not, but you weren't because <laughs> no. some people, I mean, most people I've interviewed who've had them say it just, it was such, it was so horrible because it did make them emotional or just really angry, right. super short tempered, you know, super just that, um, yeah. what do they call it? Road, road rage, steroid road rage, right? Yeah, road rage. And, and so I just love that you made it work, that it worked for you, but you also made it work to your advantage, that you're very, it sounds like you're very methodical about it and you knew and you were able well, to track. You know, the first, the first couple of cycles, I didn't know. And I right. was surprised by my emotional volatility and, and the flow of symptoms, but I'm a curious person. And so I ask a lot of questions and, um, uh, and the doctors didn't always have answers for me. Um, so right. I would go, so I would go researching. Um, and, you know, I mean, ultimately, um, you know, I wrote the big ordeal because my doctors weren't giving me answers. And there were questions that um, not only I had, but that um, others that were going through cancer had the same questions. It's like, well, well, why isn't anyone giving us the answers to this? Why don't we know this in advance? Yeah. So. Yeah. After the chemotherapy, were you then done? Yes. And um, I was not 100% certain of that until the very end. Um, but um, the, uh, the doctor said, you know, we might need to do, it said originally we might need to do uh, radiation as well, and we'll figure that out uh, down the road. Um, and as I was researching protocols and looking at different hospitals and doctors and, and getting second opinions, there were um, two, you know, top hospitals um, 
uh, one in New York and, and one in Houston that they said the protocol was absolutely uh, radiation and radiation was internal, um, meaning um, uh, vaginal rods that then um, oh, my God. would have no. provided the radiation right at the site of the cervix. And I was very thankful when my doctor said, no, no, I don't think we're going to need to do that, yeah. Cynthia. That sounds so, <laughs> so awful. Oh, my so God. Awful. So awful. I really feel wow. for people that, you know, need that as part of their treatment. Wow. Oh, gosh. What was your worst moment in all of it? You know, I think um, the worst moment was actually... Um, the first news and and in the absence of information um mm. the mind goes to a really bad place and part of it is that you know for millennia cancer has been a death sentence and so that's yeah. what we assume when we hear the words you've got cancer and even though my gynecologist didn't tell me that on the phone the information that she did share with me made it very easy for me to conclude, A, that I had cancer, and B, that I was going to die. And I, that was just horrifying, just horrifying. Um, nothing that happened after that was quite as scary or um, difficult as what I imagined it was going to be. And, and, and that's, you know, also, I think, a a problem with sort of the way we talk about cancer or the way we don't talk about cancer more importantly is that the, the fear associated with cancer is so much greater than it needs to be. Um, you know, but there's nothing pleasant about chemotherapy. There's nothing pleasant about having surgery, but they're also, they're, they're manageable. They are manageable things. And if we talked about cancer more openly, and shared what the experiences was really like more uh, widely, um, I think people wouldn't be as fearful. Um, and that's really my quest is to get us all to talk about um, the, the hard parts of cancer. And of course, so much of it is the fear. Yeah, I think we're getting there. I think it's definitely getting better. It's getting better. I, I will push back and say, as far as the fear, I think it really depends on the kind of cancer and the stage. Yeah. You know, and perhaps also just your your overall health prior to the cancer, because of course any any health complications you have will will make any treatment more difficult to administer. But um that's the only way place I would push back because yeah. you know, if you're diagnosed in stage four, that's mm. tough. That's tough. Uh, that's yeah. definitely tough. And, but I think that one of the hard things about cancer, um, one of the things that makes a, a cancer diagnosis so challenging is when you first hear the words, you've got cancer, you don't know what that means because it's the true. doctors don't know what that means. And they can't stage it until they have opened you up and seen how widespread is it. They can't type it until they have um, taken a sample to analyze and know what exactly it is. And, and because of that lack of knowledge, there's an extended period of time. It may be a few days, it may be a few months where you don't know what your stage is and you don't know what your treatment protocol is gonna be and you assume the worst. Um, now there, was, um, there were a couple of people I spoke with uh, in, the, in the process of writing the book that um, had such rare cancers. It took more than 
two or three months for them to find the doctor who could answer the questions, who could come up with a protocol and tell them what their stage was. Um, you know, others, their tumor seems too large to um, uh, surgically remove uh, initially. And so they have to go through chemotherapy or some other type of treatment to shrink the tumor before they have the surgery. So again, they don't necessarily know their prognosis until after that surgery, which could be months after um, their, their initial um, you know, whispers that, oh, you've got cancer. And I think that that uncertainty adds a lot to the fear and anxiety associated with the disease. Yeah. And to your point, many people start treatment and have never actually had a biopsy. And right. that always blows my mind, but it, it happens a lot. And again, it kind of depends on the kind of cancer. And if, if you're outside the US, it happens um, much more frequently that you don't have a biopsy that based on imaging and blood work, mm -hmm. you know, you're diagnosed with X, Y, or Z with, with really no confirmation. No confirmation. And, and until you see the tissue under a microscope, I mean, you know, how do you know for sure? How do you know? How do you yeah. know? Yeah. What was your best moment in all of it? Oh, boy. Um, I think that the best moment was actually when that surgeon took my hand and said, Cynthia, you're going to be okay. Um, and literally, I mean, his words were, there are two types of cancer. Um, there's the kind of cancer uh, that uh, you're going to die from, and there's the kind of cancer that we can treat. And this is a cancer that we can treat, and you're going to be fine. And that that comfort and reassurance. And of course, I didn't I didn't believe him, but that was a change <laughs> point for me. <laughs> even though you didn't believe him, I love it. I, okay. Even though I didn't believe him, it was a turning point. It just it just it took the edge off enough for me to right. get through what I needed to do from there. And Cynthia, what's one thing you wish you had known at the very beginning of your cancer journey when you first heard that news? Yeah, I wish I wish that I had known that um, that cancer causes um, predictable um, emotional response, and that so much of the emotion one experiences with cancer um, is actually caused by um, physiological changes that uh, that drive the emotional experience. Um, not to mention the you know hormonal changes of having your ovaries removed or having dexamethasone in your system or whatever, but there are changes that happen at the cellular level because there are cancer cells in your body, because treatment is killing off those cancer cells. And those um, physiological changes drive a lot of emotional volatility. Um, you know, because we don't talk about cancer and as a society, we don't talk about mental health and emotional well-being. We certainly don't talk about uh, the confluence of the two. And I think one of the things that was so surprising to me um, as I started talking to other people about cancer was the predictability and the, and the patterns to the emotional response that people had. Um, and of course, you know, we're all different. We all have different DNAs, different lived experiences, different um, uh, expectations that we put on ourselves, different uh, ways of, of processing information and internalizing things and, and expressing ourselves. And so even though no two of us will look the same and say the same things um, about our emotional experience of cancer, there's a very clear underlying pattern of emotions that happens sure. during a cancer experience. And um, 
I wish that I had known going into it that that was known and predictable and that there were tremendous support services available to people going through that emotional turmoil. Did you get any support services? Nope. <laughs> none, none at all. And in fact, my, um, my surgeon and medical oncologist had co-founded a program called Women to Women that I am now a, a peer mentor uh, with, which is, you know, basically newly diagnosed uh, gynecologic cancer patients receiving um, support and guidance and, and handholding from uh, those of us who have been there already. Um, and, you know, a whole host of other supportive services and information and counseling and, and whatnot. But the, the peer mentoring program, um, they had started this program because they knew that women needed help, but they never communicated that this program existed to me. No, and, they never told you? Never told me. I, I did not what? know it existed until I was looking for cancer patients to interview for um, for the big ordeal. And that's when they said, oh, you know, you might check with so-and-so who runs this program. I was like, well, what's this program? And I was I was just blown away because... I think that there are tremendous resources out there, but you have to know to ask for them. And of course, you only know to ask for them if you know that it's acceptable to ask for them, that it's predictable that you're going to need them and that um, that they exist. Um, do, do you think that they assume that you already knew? I think that possible? they assumed that I was, I you know, my way of dealing with um all things in life is to project badass and then hide my own uh, concerns. And <laughs> so I was projecting badass. My doctor called me one badass cancer patient. And that was sort of, you know, my badge of honor that I was badass. Right. But that didn't mean I wasn't crying in the shower every day. Um, yeah. But because I wasn't showing my medical team my fears, um, I think that they didn't think I had any fears. I think that they didn't think, you know, and part of that is just the way our medical system is designed. You know, there's a surgeon you talk to your surgery about. There's a medical oncologist you talk to your um, your chemo about. There's a radiation oncologist you talk to your radiation about. Where is the psychosocial oncologist right. uh, as part of that team? You know, they're they're rare. Um, and, you know, some of the best cancer hospitals have a psychosocial oncology team and uh, supportive care services, and you are required to meet with them. But if you're not required to meet with them, you don't necessarily know that they're there. Yo, Even you if they are they hidden, exist. you don't know that they exist. And again, nobody says this is an expected part of the process. And therefore, we have these resources built in. Let's schedule you an appointment. Um, yeah. And so you don't know. So I think I know what the answer to this question is, but Cynthia, if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., so not necessarily cancer care, but just healthcare broadly, what would it be and why? I, I think the most important thing would be that we incorporate mental health into physical health in all aspects of medicine, and that we go back to looking at patients as whole people as opposed to organ-specific or disease-specific um, vessels. And, I, and it's, a, it's a problem because um, while we have increasingly specialized focus that allows us to be experts in so many types of care, um, 
we often lose that that human connection and we count on our medical experts to be healers but a big part of healing is seeing and touching and um, uh, really hearing what a patient has to say and I, I think that so much of that gets lost in the way our, our medical system is structured specialists yeah. with 10 minutes uh, per patient yeah wow I agree are you ready for the thriver rapid fire oh absolutely <laughs> hit me up <laughs> okay beach desert or mountains well never desert um on a normal day i would say beach because i just love the sound of the lapping wave but we're in the middle of a heat wave and it is bloody hot and so i'm, <laughs> I'm going to the mountains <laughs> i love it beach boys beetles or rolling stones <laughs> oh that's another tricky one but uh, definitely got to be the beetle there is a, a beetle song for every emotion every experience in life so definitely the beetles what is one word that best describes you? Oh, hopefully insightful. I think a lot of people would say that. I'm just, I'm very perceptive and I put pieces together that others don't necessarily put together and hopefully then share that in a way that's meaningful as well. So I think insightful. And before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Oh, Leonard Cohen's Alleluia. I just love that song. It gets me every time I listen to it. And, uh, you know, not that my death is anything to be glorified, but uh, I just, I love, I love that song. So, now, yeah. so you set us up for a Beatles song. So I'm just thinking, <laughs> I, I was fully well, prepared. Well, Leonard, Leonard Cohen wasn't an option and neither was Paul Simon. That's, or, that's, that's, or that's Clapton, true. So. That's true. I, I interviewed a 21 year old. She is the youngest endometrial cancer survivor in the UK. Wow. And she was like, yeah, I don't really know those bands. And <laughs> I said, well, then you just let us know which one, you know, pick another one. And she did. Mm -hmm. It was just like, she kind of like vaguely had heard of them. And I was right. like, wow, vaguely yeah, had vaguely. heard of yeah. those three. Okay. Yeah. So funny. Um, all right. <laughs> How about the last meal you want to eat? Oh, that would be my Nana's Christmas Eve supper. My goodness. Um, I'm Sicilian by heritage, and you wouldn't know that from my name. But um, we used to gather around the table, 20 or more, with multi-courses of fish and pasta. And and my grandmother cooked it better than anybody else. So Nana's Christmas Eve meal. And the last person or people you want to see? Oh, my family. My darling husband, Charlie, and my two kids, Catherine and David, I just always want to be with them. Always. Have they given you grandkids yet? Not yet, but I'm hoping. <laughs> <laughs> Every person I know, especially women who have become a grandparent, they all say the same thing. They say, forget being a parent. Being a grandparent is amazing. You know, it's really funny. Yeah. How about the last words you will speak? Oh, it'll be, I love you to somebody, whoever is there. Yeah. And aside from Cancer You, what's one resource that you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And please tell people how they can get in touch with you and find your book. Right. So I would highly recommend um, Cancer Support Community because I think that they are just terrific. 
but I would also recommend uh, The Big Ordeal. And my book, The Big Ordeal, um, is available in bookstores everywhere. Um, and my website, thebigordeal.com, has tremendous amount of information um, available for patients and caregivers, um, and it's free, and you don't have to buy anything. And hopefully you'll um, find something there that'll inspire you, and, and maybe you'll want to buy the book because you'll want to learn more. Um, the, the website has um, stories from patients and from caregivers. It's got insights on um, you know, sort of digested science, um, and it's got um, uh, my ramblings, my blog, um, as well as uh, other information about me and other resources um, to use. An easy way to contact me um, from there, um, but you can always reach me at Cynthia at TheBigOrdeal.com. That's perfect. So we will put links to that in the show notes um, and the workshop notes. Cynthia, thank you so much for, first of all, for just coming up to the booth at ASCO and being so <laughs> proactive. I mean, kudos to you. I don't oh, think a lot you. of authors, regardless of what subject matter, I don't think a lot of authors realize how much the onus is on them to be yeah. the, the salesperson for, for their book. And yeah, you have to be, you are the best salesperson by far. And so kudos to you for doing that, but also thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Well, it's such a pleasure, Andrea. Thank you for doing this and helping to spread the word. I mean, there is so much that we do know about cancer and how to get through it. And um, the more we share, the more we talk about it, um, the more we can all learn from those who have been there. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.